friends, this is your friendly Corinne, and we had a little bit of an oops and lost the entire end of our episode. So before we get started, I just wanted to take time to thank bensound.com for the use of their song, Little Idea, and remind you that you can find us on Facebook at Interjection Podcast, as well as Twitter at the same handle. Um, and we have our blog at interjectionpodcast.blogspot.com, where you can find our references for most episodes. Hello, and welcome to Interjection. Serious information. For a curious nation, I'm your host, Janet. And I'm your co-host, Corinne. How are you doing today, Corinne? I'm still half asleep. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the end of the semester slump. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I turned in the last of my grades yesterday. Uh, so today's actually my first real day off off. Mm. But not really because I have a course prep. <laughs> yeah, um, our semester starts on Monday. So I got less than two weeks. I always forget how early the Midwest starts compared to us. Well, let's see. So, non sequitur, today we're going to be talking to you about fake news. Which feeds so well to talking about college. Yes, it does. Because we're having a real issue right now in America and across the globe with fake news. um, In particular, with uh, how difficult it is can be to actually navigate what the differences between real news and fake news and credible sources and sources that are not credible. So without further ado, I think it'll be very helpful to discuss how to spot fake news and where to get sources you can actually trust. Fun fact, I actually got a paper this semester that was turned in by a student who used primarily um, fake news sources. Uh, in the research. Cool. Yeah, and I was really taken aback because we had spent a few weeks in the course itself discussing fake news and how to spot it. And this clearly, I don't know where the, but um, it was a problem. And part of it was content. I mean, it was very unreliable, but it also just did not put up a very persuasive argument whatsoever. So I think. It's something that we need to discuss more because we are seeing in our current uh, executive branch in particular, but there's a lot of people that are discussing fake news and it keeps leaking out into the mainstream media. Uh, Occasionally a fake news article will be reported on as if something really happened. So, And that's actually such a big deal that there was, and I'm going to have to look it up later and put it into our sources for the day, but there was a fake study done to show how bad fake news had gotten where a professor made it look like a real journal article and managed to get it posted in a real Mm. journal and then waited to see how long it would be before it showed up in the news and what would happen when it did. Yeah. Um, and like he said that there, there were plenty of, um, indicators in the article that it was fake. Yeah. And everybody should have caught it. So not only was he proving that it's a problem when it gets to the journalism side of things, but mm-hmm. the fact that the, um, the professors, the PhDs, the doctors who were doing the actual peer review 
Uh, mm-hmm. They missed those indicators. Wow. Was this the one where you had to get to the very end and read like the first few sets of footnotes before it became apparent that they were really making stuff up? I'm pretty sure it was. Part of the peer review process is about spotting errors when they happen and actually offering a a public retraction of these types of articles. So just to let you know, um, so why don't we just go ahead and start talking about the different tiers of sources in terms of academics. And so um, we'll just go straight into the peer-reviewed sources. So if you think about sources for papers or research, it really does follow this pyramid approach. And at the very top of the pyramid is a select group of sources known as peer-reviewed sources. So peer-reviewed sources are generally academic journals. Um, There are peer-reviewed presses, book presses, that are usually affiliated with some kind of university. Um, So University of Michigan Press, that type of thing. Um, What makes peer-reviewed articles and texts the most credible is because they go through this really intensive review process. Uh, Peer-reviewed presses tend to be affiliated with higher institutions of learning or think tanks like um, NIH, where it is all about a group of professionals that usually have terminal degrees, so PhDs, MDs, DMDs, uh, that kind of group, lots of doctorates. And they tend to operate in a nonprofit setting, which helps cut back on bias because they're not as interested in pushing publications that are going to mean big sales. Uh, so it it is part of the... The process, I mean, a press does want a book to do well, so there is a degree of marketing in terms of flyers and making the covers, but and lots if of you've ever seen, yeah, <laughs> lots of reader copies, <laughs> but if you've ever seen an advertisement for an academic book, it is very, very different than um, a advertisement for a novel. Yeah. Um, the target audience for those are boring people like professors. So it actually is not really marketed for huge sales amongst the public. It just isn't. So that helps eliminate bias. Um, another aspect of the peer review is that when we say peers, we're actually talking about the top dogs in the field. And so what will happen is a lab or a professor or some expert will write a manuscript for a book, or they'll write an article, and they'll send it into the journal. And the journal will then ask, as a professional courtesy, they don't get paid for this, um, they will actually contact the top people in those fields and ask if they could read the articles and give their two cents on it. And this is done without being paid, so that also helps eliminate bias. Read through it. It's usually a very meticulous reading, and they're asked not only what their thoughts are, but also um, what other recommendations you have for this piece to make it um, completely publishable. So the lab um, manager or the researcher We'll look at it and say, you know, I think there's a problem with this study. They need to run a different con- 
troll group, or they might suggest that the author look into using um, a, another source that somebody might have actually published on this previously, or they might even know of another study that might um, challenge some of the findings. So they will go through and they will give this very, very detailed feedback and send it back to the publisher. And the people, by the way, that run these peer-reviewed presses and journals are also academics. So they've also been through a ridiculous amount of education and they're at the top of their game as well. And then based on these recommendations, the journals will have to decide whether it should be published as is, whether it can be published with some of these changes, or whether it's just not ready yet. So they fact-check everything, and um, once something gets published in one of these journals, it then goes um, and is subject to the criticism of anybody that picks it up. So sometimes, like what you were just saying, Corinne, when a journal will have a paper that is published, and let's say it did get through a panel of four different experts across the globe, um, and it gets published, and then a reader finds an error. So what will happen, the reader will contact the journal and say that there's some kind of error, they'll give evidence, the journal will look into it, and if there's a problem, then what peer-reviewed presses and journals will do is that they will actually publish something right away that will either retract the paper or will make some kind of correction. So actually admitting that there was a mistake or a problem is very, very important because that tells you that they're interested in getting the best research out there. Okay, so basically this is why the peer review is so, um, is so high up there in this hierarchy of sources is because there are so many different stop gaps in there to make sure that something does not get published that is sensationalized or has made up data or based on hearsay. Another part of this peer-reviewed um, tier is that the citations are just absolutely nuts. I'm just going to ask Corinne, Corinne, about on average in your field, when you look at a journal article about how many citations are throughout um, if I'm looking at a linguistics one, I'm probably looking at a paper that has two to three pages of citations in about a mm -hmm. 10 point font. Yes. Yes. So, so I was just looking at one of the peer reviewed articles in my field and it's not uncommon to have 80, 160 sources on just one journal article, like a 25, 30 page article. When you get into the sciences, my husband's in the sciences, so I see these all the time, they'll easily have 200 or more. Mm -hmm. And when you look at oh, the citations, the work cited in these journals, every single one of them, for the most part, tends to come from another peer reviewed source. And they're also stated by name. Um, and this differs from the mid-tier, which I'm about to get into. So when we get into the mid-tier of sources, you get more of the credible news sources, you get trade journals, and you 
see things like the New York Times right. and the, Time Magazine. The common man. Yeah. Ones. Yeah. yeah so. um, going back to peer reviewed, um, mm-hmm. I think that something that's also really important to pay attention to is what kind of study you're looking at. <laughs> Um, so this week we were actually talking in my class, um, we've been doing a lot of things about millennials do X, um, Mm -hmm. because I was taking a class on American college culture and that's who's in college right now. And a lot of it seemed like bull honky to me. (laughs) And I, so I started looking at the research and what I found really quickly was that there's, um, number one, not a lot of research done at all. And number two, um, not, I could not find a single meta-analysis of anything. Mm. And a meta-analysis, for those who don't know, is a paper based on all the papers on one topic. So basically right. what they do is they go through hundreds of papers and find the spots where there's holes or there's gaps or where everything agrees. Right. Um, there's one out there for autism, actually, that has something like 5 million children in the report just because they analyze so many articles. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing like that in the student affairs professional field that I could find for the topics that we were doing. There were some on healthcare, but they weren't even meta-analyses. A lot of them were self-reported. Mm-hmm. Um, and self-reports are, they're data, but they're not the that's data because humans aren't real good at reporting on themselves. You don't say. Um, but the what I teach in my classes is I actually go through, there's this really great video out there. It's by um, Healthcare Triage. It's one of mm-hmm. the uh, Green Brothers many, many projects out there. And mm-hmm. they do one called Sugar Doesn't Make You Hyper. <laughs> Which makes my class insane every semester because they're like, I get hyper when I have sugar. And I said, no, you need to listen to what the research just said. It's all in your head. It's placebo. Yep. But yep. I get, and I said, no, that's not how science works. So let's watch it again. <laughs> but what he does is he goes through and he breaks it down from controlled trial to randomized mm-hmm. control to blind to double blind. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of explains that. And for those, I don't want to go through all of that in a podcast because that'll take forever, but yes. I recommend going to watch that video because he explains it very clearly, um, mm-hmm. how each of those breaks down and what's in them. And of course there's silly little infographics as you go. <laughs> those are always helpful, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but basically what you need to know as a researcher is that you should really be trying to look for at the least randomized controlled trials. Double mm-hmm. blinds are the best, but they're rare because they're really hard to set up. Um, right. And a meta-analysis that covers nothing but those is going to be even better. Yes, and it also depends, too, on what field you're looking at, right? So um, I, I do literature and history, and those tend to be more qualitative-type studies instead of quantitative. So. Um, also be aware of which one you're looking at. If you're trying to figure out a trend across time or if you're trying to figure out how many people are affected by a certain disease, um, those types of things have to be looking for quantitative studies. Um, I, With my field in literature, a lot of it is qualitative or analyzing like one small piece and trying to tease out as much information that we can from that one piece. So 
Um, that's how Corinne ended up reading a old Germanic text looking for the word nourish. Good times. <laughs> so the mid-tier. So with the mid-tier, you get presses like New York Times, Washington Post, CNN. If you're looking more globally, BBC News, Al Jazeera. These are all presses that have a pretty good track record in that they tend to fact check. They tend to be a little bit more cautious than they are reporting on issues. They will tend to cite sources. Many of them have policies that they will not keep sources anonymous unless there is some kind of real concern to the person's safety or that person is in really deep in some kind of big organization. So if you have been reading the Washington Post, you'll see that a lot of their sources, um, when they are talking to people who work in the White House, will not be named. So that's one of the differences between a peer-reviewed press and a regular news source in that the peer review presses cite everything mm -hmm. with newspapers they don't necessarily cite everything the other thing they don't do is they might not cite uh basic background information mm -hmm. they will perhaps do research and tell you factual information but they won't necessarily tell you precisely what article they looked at for that information or what archive they went to. Now, online, so, one of the, the cues that something is a, a good online source from one of those is that they often will link you to the original medical or research journal or something so that you can look at it. Now, the average person may not know what that says once they get <laughs> Because professor well, speak is crazy, but it's always a good sign if they link back to original articles, but you still have mm -hmm. to check the articles. You do. And that actually, I'm really glad that you brought that up because you do have to be a little cautious with some of the links because there's also something called the SEO, the search engine optimization that relies very heavily on links to other articles to help get you higher up in the search engines. So, Sometimes they have a profuse amount of linking that really are not sources. They're more just related topics that they've selected to help them um, get boosted in these search engines. Um, one of the things that you do want to look for, like you said, if they do link to something and it is the original source, really check that source out. Um, one of the problems with some of the fake news sites is they might have a lot of in-text links, but they tend to link to themselves. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so if you go to the New York Times, you'll see that they link to several other sites that are relatively credible. Um, but a site like Infowars or Breitbart, which makes it news a lot, they tend to be very insular and they'll only cite themselves. So that's something to look out for. Now with, with the mid-tier news articles, you also have to take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt because the people writing the articles are generally not experts in their field. Mm -hmm. They tend to be journalists and they do have 
degrees usually, but it's mostly in writing, in journalism. Um, They can specialize in a field. So there might be a science writer or a sports writer, et cetera, which will give them a certain amount of expertise that the average reader probably does not have. But they have not been through the rigorous training that it takes to get a PhD or an MD or whatever the highest degree is in that field. And what, and one of the reasons I bring this up is because uh, my husband in particular, he's in the sciences, we will hear a news report on a study that looks at some kind of new diet trend or new health breakthrough. And as they're talking about it, he'll look at me and be like, but that is statistically not significant. That's within the normal you know, um, range and yeah, that's, that doesn't say anything or that's just one study. It's a preliminary study. It's interesting, but until people can duplicate it, it doesn't really mean anything or, or we'll look at the sample size, right? Yeah. And And it'll be 10 people. Yeah. It's like, Ooh, 10 people, not really a very good sample size for a lot of these medical studies. So, um, but again, you have to just use, use your own discernment and understand too that journalists from the more credible news sites will do their best to try to adhere to the facts, which is why one of the reasons you see all these experts on the, on these news shows when they'll interview researchers and, and other experts is because they're trying to show that they did do a little bit of research, that there are credible sources out there. One of the problems, though, with the mid-tier and why it's not considered in the top group is that they're much more likely to have bias in the article itself Mm -hmm. because the name of the game in journalism is selling copies and getting viewers and getting subscriptions. So they actually have incentive to make information sound more severe than it Mm -hmm. or more sensational or more earth shattering. Mm -hmm. And they also are much more likely to pick out stories that do not represent the norm Mm -hmm. or the majority, because (laughs) the whole point of news is to find something new, right? So we will be bombarded with a very, very small select, you know, group of people, but they might run, you know, 10, 20 articles on them within a month because they're interesting, but this small group of people don't really represent the majority. So you, you do have to be careful when you are working with these articles. Uh, If you're online, one of the ways to tell the difference between a peer reviewed journal site and one of these news sites is Honestly, just look at, I'm going to use the new term everyone's got, the optics, the optics of it. Um, An academic journal will have very few, but most likely no ads whatsoever. The font will be a very serious, boring font. The There will not be huge, blaring headlines in all capital letters. The colors tend to be the school colors. Yeah, it's it's very muted usually. 
most of the time the graphics are only what is absolutely necessary. So um, whatever the article requires in terms of graphs and charts, and if there does need to be a picture, it is fully cited, mm-hmm. you know, with figure one as, <laughs> underneath as it. As people often do not seem to know, you are supposed to cite your pictures as well as your words. Yes, you are. So, so that's always a good sign. <laughs> yes. So uh, a more credible news source, when you go in there, they tend to also not have the titles in all capital letters. They don't like shouting at the audience. Mm-hmm. But you're going to see a lot more play with copy and color. And you will see ads. That's part of them trying to bring in revenue. So that will be something for you to look for. And also look to see if there's a work cited at the end. Mm-hmm. Most newspapers do not include a works cited page at all. So that's another thing that you can look at to indicate if you're on one of these sites. Um, in the mid-tier two are government sites, right? So we like government research because government research is really well funded usually and they come up with really big numbers like when we're looking at the U.S. Census and mm-hmm. you are wanting to get lots of data on huge, huge issues. It, they're a wonderful place to go. But you also have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because these Governments are put out... are corrupt. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Not all of them. It's every, this is something that I talk about with my students because, you know, I have like 80% Chinese students in my class and they're very used to a very censored government. So a lot of times they get a little crazy with their um, newspaper sources because it's America, freedom of speech, nothing's censored. And it's like, no, 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 guys, there's still rules. So we gotta, let's work on that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, every, the easiest way is history. Take any war and look at it through the lens of the two countries involved in the war. <laughs> and we can do that in the U S we talked about that a little bit on my mini. So, um, looking at the civil war from a Northern versus a Southern perspective is very different in our language, um, in this country. And that's a problem because the truth is always someplace in between the two. Um, which is why we do say when you're dealing with these secondary sources that you do read newspapers like Al Jazeera because it's really good to get those outside views looking in at us, especially from places where maybe we are not the most popular in the world. It gets tricky because, of course, yeah, there is censored news out there. That's going to be a problem. But Mm -hmm. in in the end of things, you know, a government's going to tell the story to make its people feel the safest or look the coolest. Well, and it, and I'm going to push back a little bit though. Um, it, there's some truth to that. You you have to really be, pay attention to why a study has been done, mm-hmm. who who funded it, why they started it. Um, U.S. Census state. Yes, that's something we didn't add. That's with any study. I'll right. Just look to see who funded it. Right. Um, so with with. You know, like the U.S. Census. I mean, that's basically a head count. Mm -hmm. Um, With the better government studies, they will actually publish their entire methodology, which Mm -hmm. is very helpful. So that's something that I do advise that you look at. Um, I was on the FBI statistics page, which is fascinating. I love this page. Um, But the statistics page is basically just give you a breakdown of the charts 
um, if you look at the actual study itself, there are hundreds of depending on what they're looking at. And they do give a lot of information as to how they went around collecting the data, how many agencies helped contribute to it. And that actually helps me as a consumer of this information understand more about how it was collected and for what. So I I don't want to discourage readers from using government funded oh, no, data. Definitely but, use it, but but just just be aware. Out. Yeah, just be aware that you you need to pay attention to what it's for and who's putting it together and how the data is collected. The other thing with the government data is that very rarely a person's name is actually on it. It belongs to an agency. So the FBI puts it out or the Census Bureau puts it out. And we uh, we aren't really given a way to contact the lead researcher on that project to confirm the statistics. I'm not saying that it that it's impossible to do. I'm sure that you could start calling people. Yeah, it's just difficult. So um, it, it is, however, one of the reasons why this is in the mid-tier and not in the lowest tier, because when you do have a group of experts, if you do have a group of scientists working, you know, for NIH or, or something or the EPA, um, they, there tends to be more peer discussion, which is not the same as peer review, but at least you've got a lot of irons in the in this proverbial fire and you can be helping each other fact check a little bit, um, which is very different than some random guy writing a blog where there really isn't um, a... Lizard people. Yeah, yeah. So um, if there's one thing I have learned from having worked government jobs in the past is you kind of don't want to lose that job because they tend to be pretty nice So, <laughs> in terms of benefits. So um, there's incentive to try to not make your agency look really dumb mm-hmm. by publishing bad data. But that being said, um, it does not go through the peer-reviewed process. It, it is not circulated amongst the top heads in the field usually. And there isn't, it is being published as part of a job, mm-hmm. unlike, you know, other things that are um, published in the peer review realm, which is for research's sake, you know. So, um, and then, of course, we got to talk about the lowest tier. The onion. Yeah. <laughs> so the lowest tier, when you're talking about sources, are going to be the stuff that you often find on the net. So some guy's random blog or a site like, I personally really like reading Jezebel because I have an angry feminist inside of me that really responds to that. Yeah, but, but I also, also know it's really, really biased. I was, <laughs> was going to say, but I also make sure that I read all the other stuff out there on mm-hmm. these topics because they are very biased. And it's not to say that you can't find credible information on some of these websites. That's one of the problems that we're running into with fake news and with heavily biased news Mm -hmm. is that often there are moments of truth that happen. Um, In particular, fake news sites, sites that will try to mimic 
real news sites. There's a fake CNN site out mm-hmm. there. There's a fake ABC News site out there. They actually steal logos and try to make it look credible. Yeah. One of the ways that they can keep readership is by throwing out articles that are actually legit and then stack those against articles that have really um, skewed data or fabricated data. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing, um, I've done a lot of reviews of Breitbart because, of course, we have Bannon in the White House, and I'm interested in seeing what they're pushing. Sometimes I have a little bit of difficulty navigating what they say. I have read articles on their site where as I go through and start fact-checking, the facts do check out. Um, other articles on their site, however, more often than not, they will have facts that really check out, but the way that they are presenting them is really skewed and more propaganda. Um, and then, of course, there are some articles on that site where they will not acknowledge any of the sources. They will not have more than one source. A lot of it will be hearsay or they'll cherry pick information and it is very clear that no one really did a rigorous look at what the context was and how it was built up. It was just written as a way to incite anger or frustration or fear. And, you know, that's that's a really good point, bringing up the emotion, because one of the things that I talk about with my students is that a good academic source of any kind really shouldn't mm-hmm. stir emotion in you. the words words shouldn't make you feel something the numbers may make you feel something but the words themselves the word choice shouldn't be there to incite an emotion it's supposed to be there to cite analysis of some kind right Um, so so when you're like oh of course they're right that's actually a really good sign that that's not a good source Yes, exactly. One of the easiest ways to spot this um, this trying to rely more heavily on pathos than logos and trying to get readers' emotions going is to look at how the copy is laid out mm-hmm. article or on the website. Breitbart <laughs> um, will have these really, really emotional, passionate, shocking headlines and these big, huge, bold letters. Uh, And many fake news sites will actually be using all cap titles Mm -hmm. and subheaders. And some of them will actually use strings of exclamation points in the text copy itself. That's never a good sign. You know, I do that on Twitter, but that's just Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't belong in an article. Right. Uh, the other the other thing about fake news sites is the ads are outrageous. And they will have things like either scantily clad women or there'll be some kind of clickbait that has, like, some sort of weird-looking skin disease. And uh, they also will have lots of pop-ups, lots and lots and lots of Mm pop-ups, or just massive banners. So when you go to Breitbart News, the first thing your eyes are assaulted with is this huge merch banner at the top where they want you to buy T-shirts and and other crap that they're peddling. So I'm going to go to it real quick just so we can see what's there right now on the cell phone. Um, (laughs) 
So the first thing is actually an ad for Liberty Nation, where conservatives and independents go for real news and fresh insights. And it's a really poorly made um, clip art type <laughs> one. Um, the second yes. thing is the official Breitbart store. And then yep. there's a newspaper article um, by a name that is questionable, actually. Um, the first title is Putin. Russian cannot prove Trump did not give classified intel to diplomats. Um, and it's all in caps. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that being, of course, that Trump said he did. Uh, next one. <laughs> um, the next one is what? W-U-T question mark. Dennis. Oh, no, I'm going to say his name wrong because I haven't heard this one yet. This is. Is it Kucinich or Kucinich calls BS on Waypo story dot dot dot. That's not a good sign. B-S and W-U-T. Um, I'm going to scroll down <laughs> to see what the next thing is. The next thing is an ad for Walden University's PhD in Human and Social Services Studies. That one might be a Google ad of some kind because I was looking at PhD programs this week. <laughs> um, then it's followed oh, by... Oh, Big Brother's watching. Yeah. It's followed by Trending Now. Um, uh, no More Chest Wrinkles ad. Um, Comey Strikes Back, CNN's Bash, A Puppy Dog. Um, lots of articles here for things with pictures that there's a lot of white people in these pictures. Um, 